0: The reading this morning is John 13, verses 31 to 38. That's page 900 if you've got a blue church Bible, John 13, 31 to 38. And while we're looking at that now, here's the question for each of us as I read it. If you could sum up the four or so topics in these verses with one word each, what would those words be? John 13, beginning at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Loving Heavenly Father, please would you speak to us this morning by your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to it. And we pray that wonderful fruit would result in us and through us. For the sake of your everlasting glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever thought about what you'd want to be your final words before you die. Uh, sometimes, of course, we don't get to choose our last words, do we? I, I think of the American Civil War general visiting troops on the front line, and he was warned to keep his head down. And his last words were famously, why, they couldn't hit an elephant at this, this. But sometimes last words can be deliberate and even poetic, can't they? Uh, Robert Alton Harris, killed for murder in, in murder in California in 1992, said this. You can be a king or a street sweeper, but everybody dances with the grim reaper." And in Australia, more recently, a hospice nurse called uh, Bronnie Ware spent years hearing her patients' final words and ended up writing about them, and they're almost all regrets. So here are some of the more common things she heard often over the course of several years. Uh, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I hadn't held back my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch. I wish I'd chosen to be happy and not complain so much. I wish I'd cared less about what others thought. I wish I hadn't worried so much. So I wonder if you've ever thought about what you'd want your last words to be. Or not want your last words to end up having to be. Or, separate question, I wonder what each of our last words will be. We're all going to have them. Unless Jesus comes back before well, we're now at the point in John's Gospel where Jesus starts to give his last words, as it were, his big final teaching opportunity to his disciples before he allows himself to be killed, before then rising and ascending back to heaven. And maybe you're investigating Christianity this morning and you don't believe in the resurrection or the ascension. That's fine. We'll we'll get to that in a few weeks. But the point is that this teaching he's giving to his disciples now, before his death, are his departing instructions to them. And so this section... The end of chapter 13 through to the end of chapter 17 is commonly known as the farewell discourse. But we mustn't think of this as the last words of a man to his loved ones gathered around his deathbed before he goes through the final awful hopeless tragedy of death. No, this is much more like the final instructions of a military commander to his soldiers on the eve of his most dangerous and most strategically important mission ever. So they know how to exploit his victory once he's gone. Because the farewell discourse is fundamentally about mission, it's fundamentally about evangelism, it's about continuing Jesus' work to reach out and witness to the lost on his behalf, under his powerful rule from heaven, where he is right now. And so for the person listening at this moment who feels guilty, the moment the dreaded E-word is mentioned, or for the person who feels like they're a failure, at evangelism or for the person who lacks confidence when it comes to evangelism or for the person who wants to be faithful at evangelism and and wants help with that or for the person who just has loads of questions about evangelism you're in the right place and on the brink of this farewell discourse in this little section here of verses 31 to 38 of chapter 13 Jesus begins by touching on three uh, sorry four interrelated areas which we'll consider briefly in turn now glory death love and betrayal so first of all glory and this is in verses 31 to 33 so verse 31 when he had gone out that's judas from last week who's just left the last supper to betray him jesus said now is the son of man glorified now son of man that's a title jesus frequently uses of himself in the gospels it comes from this figure in the old testament daniel 7 Who is this figure of majesty and power and glory to whom God gives an everlasting kingdom of people from all peoples and nations and languages on the planet. And when Jesus says now is the son of man glorified that now is like the sound of the door slamming shut when Judas just left because with Judas departure now is the trap sprung for Jesus. Now is the start of the climax that has been set in motion. Now we're on the final irreversible accelerating run into Jesus' death. Reading on in verse 31, from verse 31, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now, referring to Judas, uh, Jesus' death, which has kind of started to unfold, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, referring to God the Father, God will also glorify him, Jesus, in himself and glorify him at once at once so Jesus knows his death is now just a matter of hours away so God's glory is the manifestation of his character it's the display of what he's like it's the demonstration of his qualities let me now just reread those those short verses from verse 31 see if that explanation sheds a bit of light on them verse 31 again now will the son of man Jesus have his nature revealed and God will have his nature revealed in Jesus Verse 32, if you're following along, if God has his character displayed in Jesus, God will also display Jesus' true character in himself and God will display and demonstrate Jesus' true character at once. I wonder if that makes a bit more sense of those verses. And the Bible explains that God's glory is the highest value in the universe. Nothing is more precious. Nothing is more important. So mentally, you know, fill in the blanks. He created the universe for the sake of his glory, to display his power, to display his wisdom. Even the the reason God saved us was for the sake of his glory, to display his love and his kindness and his mercy. And it's even the case that when lost people perish, although the Bible says God doesn't take sadistic pleasure in the death of the wicked, nonetheless, one result is God's glory as awfully His holiness and justice and defeat of evil are displayed throughout eternity. And of course the reason we're on mission for him, the reason we reach out to the lost regardless of their response is for the sake of his glory. Just to put out there as we witness all of the above about God, every other aspect of his character contained in the the, the glorious gospel, the good news of Jesus. So everything comes down to God's glory. That's what God is most committed to. That's what God most values. But we mustn't think that he's self-centered in some kind of needy, vain way, insecure way. He is self-centered, but he's the only being in the universe for whom that's appropriate. He's the, the highest being in the universe. If he wasn't putting himself first, he wouldn't be behaving like God. And he'd be sinfully idolizing whatever else he was valuing more than himself. And it's a good thing he's so committed to his own glory because that is what anchors our salvation. Think about it. If God is saving Will Dobby because he's committed to the supreme value of what's nice for Will Dobby, Will Dobby's glory, that's not the supreme value in the universe. I'd be seriously worried if God's resting on that as his reason for saving me. That's not a secure foundation for my salvation at all. Whereas if God is saving Will Dobby because he's committed to the supreme value of himself, his own glory, Now that is the supreme value in the universe. Now I know I'm secure. Now I know my salvation is properly anchored. And so the question for us coming from this first point is, am I committed to God's glory? It's the highest priority in God's life. God commands it to be the highest priority in my life. Is it? Otherwise, I'll be like the pane of glass in a lighthouse who thinks its purpose in life is to show off to the world how amazing it is. Instead of realising that its purpose is really to show off the brilliance of the magnificent light bulb behind it shining through it in other words is my life lived to make me look good or to make god look good when i'm considering life's decisions what job should i go for where should i live who should i seek to marry if anyone are my decisions based on what will best demonstrate what an amazing god he is or how i can have a nice life when i'm considering the smaller things You know, week by week, what what will I do with the money God's entrusted to me in this life? What will I do with the time God's entrusted to me each weekend? Again, are my decisions based on what will best demonstrate what an amazing God he is? Or how I can have a nice life? And when God puts evangelistic opportunities across my path, for example, the subject of coronavirus, coming up with my neighbour over the garden fence at the bus stop, Will I take the safe option and steer clear of saying anything spiritual? Or will I decide to give God glory by saying something about Him that's relevant, anything about Him, and thus giving Him glory? And by the way, being fully devoted to God's glory will leave me far more fulfilled and long term happy, deep happy, than being fully devoted to my own glory. Because being devoted to His glory is what He made me for. I'll be cutting with the grain of my own existence it is all about his glory which brings us very naturally to the second thing Jesus raises which is Jesus death and the reason I say naturally is that the father's glory and the son's glory shone at their brightest at Jesus death and that's a big theme in John's gospel that we've seen already that Jesus death is the pinnacle of God's glory because we could list every single quality God has well we couldn't human language isn't enough for that but Anything you care to think of that's true about God is on display at the cross. And in fact, even while Jesus is talking about God's glory in verses 31 and 32, there's a hint embedded there he's also talking about his own death. Those verses, his wording there echoes Isaiah chapter 49 verse 3 which is about the suffering servant who was a prophesied figure later fulfilled by Jesus who Isaiah says will die for his people. And then Jesus drops a much stronger hint about his imminent death in verse 33 he says little children yet a little while I am with you you will seek me and just as I said to the Jews so now also I say to you where I am going you cannot come and notice how tender he is to his poor slow on the uptake bewildered troubled anxious disciples sitting around the table I can just see them staring at him in the flickering candlelight knowing something is up badly wrong not being able to put their finger on it The Passover meal was traditionally a family meal and the phrase little children, one word in the Greek, could equally be translated dear children or dear little ones. And Jesus' great tenderness towards his disciples is very intense right now because he knows he's about to leave them behind and go somewhere they cannot follow, hell itself, for the six hours he's hanging on the cross, enduring God's wrath for the sin of God's people. And I know I said earlier that the farewell discourse, chapters 13 at the end to chapter 17, aren't like a deathbed scene, more like a final instruction scene by a commander to his troops. But I think this particular verse here is like a dad with minutes to live, saying a final goodbye to his small children, gathered around his hospital bed with very wide eyes, knowing, not, not knowing what's happening, but knowing that something is dreadfully wrong. Or, or verse 33 is like a, a mum saying goodbye to her baby as she frantically hands it to a rescuer through the open car window before the car then sinks beneath the waves and is gone. And the question for us here is very similar to the one we asked about God's glory. Is Jesus' death central to my life? It's the climax of his glory. It's the very point for which he came to earth. It's the most important event in human history and the sole basis on which those of us who trust in it will be in heaven, not hell forever and so it should be central in our lives, like, like a ripcord is central to the thinking of a skydiver plummeting to the earth. Like the breathing apparatus is central to the thinking of a, a diver hundreds of feet below the surface. Uh, do we assume it? Do we hang loose to it? Do we even get bored with it because they bang on and on and on about it at Redeemer every single week? Or do we acknowledge it every single day and praise God for it and drink from it as a bottomless source of joy? relief and eternal hope because that is what it is which brings us to the third thing Jesus raises which is love and in verses 34 to 35 Jesus says three things about love see if you can spot what they are as I read it verse 34 a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So it's very neat, isn't it? The command, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. The example, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And thirdly, the outcome, the result, the consequence. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And this command is is new from Jesus, not in the sense that we should love our neighbours. That's all over the Old Testament. But its newness is found in loving each other as Jesus has loved us i.e. with love that flows out of his love for us with with love that's willing to lay down our lives for the other person and our society is very confused about the true nature of love isn't it love is a, a feeling right well healthy love certainly includes a feeling jesus certainly had intense feeling for his disciples if you remember his tenderness in calling them dear little ones his children But love as the Bible recognises it is fundamentally a verb. It is fundamentally an action. It's something we do, which is why Jesus' definition here focuses on action. As I have loved you, referring to his foot washing earlier in chapter 13, which points to the cross. You also are to love one another. So the love we're commanded not so much to feel but to show each other is love which is practical and self-sacrificial. And the outcome will be a very, very powerful evangelistic message. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Coronavirus is obviously very big on our minds right now. Um, Well, in the second century AD, contagious epidemics would regularly rage through Mediterranean cities. And there was one in particular during the reign of Emperor Maximinus, which went across the whole Roman Empire between 235 and 238 AD. We don't know how many it killed. It was known as a big one. There was another big one about twelve years later, which apparently apparently was killing about five thousand people a day at its height. So maybe this one was similar and One commentator at the time was Eusebius and here's what he wrote afterwards: The evidence of the Christian' zeal and goodness was made clear to all the pagans, for example, they alone in such a catastrophic state of affairs, gave practical evidence of their sympathy and kindness by works. All day long, some of them would diligently persevere in tending to the dying and burying them, for there were countless numbers and no one to look after them. While other Christians gathered together in a single assemblage, all who were afflicted by famine throughout the whole city of Rome, and would distribute bread to them all. When this became known, people glorified the God of the Christians, and, convinced by the deeds themselves, confessed Christians alone were truly pious and God-fearing. Or Tertullian in the second century reported the comment of the pagans in his day, behold how these Christians love each other, how ready they are to die for each other. Before then citing that as a massive reason for Christianity spreading like wildfire across the Roman Empire. So there's a little church history and it's always good for us to know our own family history. And I could give many other fascinating examples from previous centuries, but here are just some examples briefly now closer to home. So I read recently about a guy called Bruce, just a normal Christian, living in a, a normal church um, with, with a with a growth group, in a growth group. He had a friend living nearby who was living on benefits and whose house needed re-roofing, but who couldn't afford to get it done. So Bruce got his growth group to go around one Saturday, and the deal was that every member of the growth group would invite a non-Christian friend to come with them and help and join in the fun too, and they called it the roofing party. And to the group's amazement, some of their non-Christian friends actually came, and so they ended up spending the day together working hard, fixing a roof, caring for the man, just having fun. Sometime after, some of the group's friends who'd been there that day started becoming Christians. Without realising it, you see, that the members of the growth group had spent all day witnessing to their friends simply by their concern for the man. And just by the way they related to each other, and loved each other, and cared for each other. Oh, I read recently about a a student called Lois. And uh, she reluctantly went along to a Christian meeting at university because she was invited, swearing in advance. She would never become a Christian. And sure enough, meeting didn't do anything for her. But at the end of the meeting, one of the Christians there realised that he didn't have enough cash to get home. At which three of the other Christians standing around promptly put their hands in their pockets and gave them what they had and it was that simple action that sparked genuine curiosity in Lois which led to her becoming a Christian herself a few months later. Well a few months after that when she was a brand new baby Christian she wanted to go to a certain Christian conference but she didn't have enough money. Well one of the other Christians in the church that she'd just joined heard about this and even though he loved camping he sold his tent and gave her the money to go on the conference and she was blown away and it confirmed her in her newfound faith. Or just one last example I think even within our own precious Redeemer family I think of Hugh's testimony soon after he became a Christian through Friendship Friday when he spoke to the church about how almost scared he was coming into the Redeemer community because of how kind and loving he found people to be which as he put it often just isn't the case out there. So let's be loving each other practically and, and what amazing opportunities the Lord is going to be giving us for that as the coronavirus impact gets bigger and bigger. Let's be looking forward to the impact that we will be able to have on unbelievers, unbelievers around us who won't be able to help but notice as we start shopping for each other and visiting each other and have stories to tell our non-christian friends about some of the love that will be bubbling up as the best is brought out of us as we seek to love each other in this season which leads us to the final thing which is jesus betrayal glory death love and betrayal verse 36 simon peter said to him lord where are you going Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now, that's the prophecy about the fact that later Peter would go on to give his life for the gospel, much like Jesus is about to now. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And as we're going to find out in a few weeks' time in John's gospel, quick spoiler. That is exactly what Peter does. As have we, as do we, as will we, as Judas just did. Which raises a really interesting comparison because we think Peter good, Judas bad. Actually, in many ways, there is very, very little to choose between them. If anything, in many ways. Think about it. Let's play a game of spot the difference. So, worked closely with Jesus for years. Judas, check. Peter, check. Seen Jesus' miracles. Judas, check. Peter, check. Heard Jesus' teaching. Judas, check. Peter, check. Been especially trusted with responsibility within Jesus' disciples. Judas, check. Peter, check. Judas was the disciples' treasurer. Peter was their leader. Received Jesus' love. Judas, check. Peter, check. Both had their feet washed by Jesus. Both shared the Passover with Jesus. And in fact, Judas was even passed the bit of bread and dip by Jesus personally. Which in that culture was a sign of special favour. Both abandoned Jesus. Judas, check. Peter, check. Judas handed Jesus over to the Pharisees for 30 pieces of silver. Peter denied knowing Jesus. Is about to deny knowing Jesus. For the sake of saving his own skin. And yet. One was lost. And the other saved. So what made the difference? Well to quote one writer. One repented and sought Christ's mercy and went to heaven. One, overwhelmed with remorse, turned in on himself, took his own life, and went unforgiven to hell. And this writer goes on. The seeds of the failure of both Peter and Judas lie embedded in each of our own hearts. We all know what it is to deny Jesus and betray him. We can only cast ourselves daily on his limitless mercy, knowing that he will not cast away even one of all who come to him, and that not one will be lost of all the Father has given him. When it comes to being on mission for Jesus and witnessing, we have denied him by letting opportunities to talk about him go past out of cowardice. We have betrayed him by sidestepping chances to tell others about him for the sake of our fear of awkwardness. I know I have, and we will. And Jesus' words to Peter here apply to us. But the thing is, To do what Peter later does. To come back to Jesus in repentance. To receive his loving forgiveness and wonderful grace and kindness. To pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off. And knowing that we're accepted because of the cross. Get back in the battle. And do so knowing that we do so for the sake of his glory. With a message centering on his death. With a method that includes the very powerful element of simply loving each other in front of the watching world. And knowing in advance that when personal failure comes, as it will, there is always more grace and forgiveness when we go back to Jesus for that. Let's pray.